This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm not here with Seth because he is out, I think, doing lawyery things or vacation-y things. I forget which one. So instead, I'm here with my lovely friend, Sarah McKenzie. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Tish. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Same. It's kind of funny because we saw each other earlier this morning because we write (laughs) together, which I think we will talk about at some point in this chat. But let's start off like we always do and tell me what you are drinking right now. I am drinking my favorite summer beverage, which mm-hmm. is a grapefruit spindrift. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I love sparkling water. Sparkling water got me off drinking pop all the time because I realized mm-hmm. I like the carbonation. I just didn't need the sugar. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but I am very p- picky about flavors. I like it either just completely plain <laughs> or I like the grapefruit spindrift. <laughs> Apparently, and that's it. very picky. Yeah. That's or, funny. I mean, I can drop in like a lemon or a lime, but I don't really like the ones that are already flavored that way. Okay. It just tastes funny to me. Yeah. You know yeah. what? That, that probably makes a recurring um, appearance on the show second to only tea and coffee. Grapefruit. Oh, is that right? Okay. Grapefruit. Not specifically Spindrift brand, but some form of sparkling water. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You're not alone. A lot yeah. of us like that. And my drink today is very similar, except I'm doing black cherry. I actually like most of the flavors. There's some that okay. I don't like. Um, but this one, I kind of dig. So, um, we actually don't have a lot of – well, we do grapefruit, but we don't keep a ton in the house because that's the one flavor our son likes, and they will disappear. <laughs> If we keep too really fast. <laughs> yes. So it's the other flavors he doesn't like. So it's like you in 12-year-old form. <laughs> I love it. I guess, okay, there's one other one that I tried recently I liked and it was a raspberry lime. I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. good. Yeah. 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 No, there's a lot of good ones. There's a lot that, um, I don't know. Most people think the coconut one tastes like sunscreen. I love it. There's other ones that taste, I don't know. Kyle doesn't yeah. like the, uh, oh, what do you call that? I forget which one it is, but I'm I'm kind of partial to most of them. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of spoiled now because I feel like when we don't have it in the house, I'm like, what do I have to just drink plain water now? <laughs> I know, like peasants. I know we do that yeah, too. Exactly. Like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And we used to have a soda stream, and I, we need to like oh, resurrect yeah. that thing because it actually saved us money. And then yeah, I, think I bet we it just did. Didn't refill the cartridge, and now it's just collecting dust. But if we did that, we would probably actually not spend so much on. These dumb cans of sparkling water yeah, as though, yeah, as though they're a necessity. Anyway, moving on. Um, okay. So you and I write together. I think I've most listeners might know that I um that we're friends and that you and I both kind of are of the same cut of fabric when it comes to the things we enjoy talking about and writing and reading. Um, but I'm not sure they know exactly that we see each other roughly once a week, sometimes more over Zoom because we write together and we catch up on each other's work and we've been doing it for a few years. So I know a bit of what you're up to um, through those moments, but I would love if you just did a little 10 peso synopsis of kind of what you do and kind of where your work is taking you now. Yeah. And I love when we write together. I think when you and I started writing together, it's just like we get on Zoom, we mute ourselves, <laughs> we write. I was describing this to my husband, and he's like, isn't that weird? So you just see each other? And I was like, well, it sounds weird, right? But it yeah. actually works magic. I, I get all my best writing done 
when you're around. So I always kind of make jokes like if Tish is sick, I guess I'm not writing. (laughs) Well, I mean, and when you say it out loud, it's like, yeah, that does sound really weird. Why should it matter? But it does matter. And I can't explain it other than there's just something about it's like having an accountability partner for working out. Um, It's like you just, you know, that someone else will. I don't know. There's just something about knowing someone is depending on you. That makes totally do better work. Anyway. Totally. Anyway. Okay. So my work, I, I host the Read a Lot Revival podcast, and I've written a couple of adult books, Teaching from Rest, A Homeschooler's Guide to Unshakable Peace, and The Read Aloud Family. Those are both adult nonfiction. Lately, though, I have been writing for kids, and I've been writing picture books. And so mm-hmm. um, that's pretty exciting. We are launching our own publishing imprint at Read Aloud Revival, launching it this summer, very exciting, called Waxwing Books. And so I've been doing a lot of my writing. A lot of the time that you and I are together, I've been working on children's stories and it's fun and it's hard and it's harder for me than I know everybody's got like every writer has their thing that's like this is easier for me or this is harder for me but for me writing children's stories is harder than most the other writing I do but it's also very satisfying and fulfilling and yeah yeah do you think it's fiction versus nonfiction or writing for kids versus adults uh, for me, I think it's fiction versus nonfiction in large part. Yeah. Um, fiction feels like there's an endless number of possibilities. And so um, – and maybe it's just because I'm less well-practiced in it because I've been writing nonfiction for so long. Every, I mean, every podcast episode we write, every you know, every blog post or book or essay or anything that we've, we do at Read Aloud Revival that feels comfortable to me. Um, but yeah, writing – and also I think – I think there's a thing where if you really value stories, like the form of storytelling, and you really cherish children, <laughs> then you really, both of those things kind of merge into realizing that the stories we share with our kids are really important. They they form yeah. them in a different way. And so it feels like this big responsibility that you want to get right, which that kind of thing when you're writing can kind of mess with your head. It At totally messes with your head. I mean, you know, I'm not even writing for kids. I'm just switching to fiction. I agree with you. It's a million times harder. And I think I do put that pressure on like, well, what would Tolkien do? Which is the dumbest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Sally Lloyd-Jones told me that when she wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, in her head, she was thinking, what would C.S. Lewis do if he was writing a book, a Bible for children? And I was like, that helped you? Because to me, I would be like, and now I'm frozen. (laughs) Right. And now I cannot do this. Exactly. Because I cannot create a world from nothing. Exactly. It's hard. And I agree with you about the endless opportunities. It's funny. Like, I don't know if you have this experience and maybe it's different with kids' stories. Well, maybe not. I'd love to know. Do you have the thing where you have an outline and you think you know where you're going, but suddenly your your fingers are taking you somewhere else and you're like, oh, we're not going there like I thought we were? Do you have hundred percent. Yes, that is where I go. I mean, I don't hardly ever, no matter what I'm writing, mm-hmm. I very rarely write without a plan at all. Um, I mean, that's what I do in my morning pages and they're just like, if anyone was ever to read them, it would be like poking out your eyeballs because <laughs> they're very meandering and mm-hmm. uh, I lose my thread and I stop mid-sentence and I start a new one. But when I'm writing on purpose, <laughs> I always start with a plan, but it very rarely stays that direction. And some, for some reason in fiction, I think it is the endless opportunities that feels more overwhelming to me than, mm-hmm. um, than nonfiction. And also because, and I wonder if this is true for you, Tish, just being an avid reader, you're constantly reading really good stuff. And so you know what good writing looks like. And so then you look at what you wrote, you're like, well, 
hmm, that's kind of a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, that is not so great. It's yeah. that whole um, gap. You know, the thing that Ira Glass has talked about, and I'm sure you and I have talked about before, where you you have good taste. You know what the good version of whatever it is you're trying to create is, and you yes. do your best, and your best still isn't good enough. And you're like, well, shoot, it's really, really hard. Although you and I have both have, have had this experience where we think, well, time to stop and move on with my day because that wasn't any good. And then the next morning we read it and we're like, oh, wasn't as bad as I thought it's it was. It's actually kind of good. So, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes totally. we're hard on ourselves. And Patchett has a thing where she talks about the same thing that Ira Glass is talking about, that gap between really good stuff and what you can make and no, seeing that there's a gap and knowing that you're not where you want to be yet. Yeah. But she talks about it as in the stories in her mind are like this beautiful glittering butterfly. And then she starts to write it down. So she like kills it. She like pins it to the page. And I laughed out loud when I was reading the way she wrote this because I thought that is me every time I try to write a story. It's beautiful yeah. until I write it down. <laughs> and then you're like, you die. Hmm. Uh, was that in the getaway car? Yeah. Uh, which- you know what? I think I it might have been in the getaway car or it might have been in her newest essay collection, one of the two, because I recently okay. read them both again. So okay. yeah. Got it. So um, you mentioned morning pages and I know you do them. I've started doing them again this summer and they have been helping. They kind of clear yeah. the the picture I have is like whenever you turn on an old faucet that's been rusty and you let all the gross water out first so that the clear water can then run. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. If a listener right now is thinking, what the heck are morning pages? How would you describe them? Well, the way they're usually talked about, I think, are three pages. Like they're kind of militantly talked about. So there's all these rules. So I'll tell you how they're talked about and then I'll tell you what I do, which is different. But um, usually when people talk about morning pages, this came from The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And the idea is that you write three pages, um, handwriting, three pages of whatever is in your brain, no purpose or – you know, rhyme or reason to it, just whatever's in your head. First thing in the morning, as early as you can. And uh, she's kind of a stickler about the three pages and the handwriting and it being first thing in the morning. So the way I do them, I did start by trying to follow her rules, but three pages handwritten takes me a really long time. I'm a slow writer. So I'm not slow about a lot of things in my life. I'm like, I move a little too quickly for my own good, except for writing. (laughs) I'm a very slow (laughs) writer. Yeah. Um, So I write... On a typical day, I'd usually do like 15 minutes because it's easier mm-hmm. for me to set aside 15 minutes rather than to say three pages, however long it takes, because um, I don't usually have that, you know? So yeah. I'll say like 15 minutes. Um, I do handwrite them and I uh, do usually about one page. I think that's probably the normal day I'll write like about a page. But I'm just mm-hmm. surprised at how much more – two things. I'm surprised at how much – more clear my writing is after I do that, just exactly like you said, like turning on the tap and letting all the mucky water get out first. But I'm also surprised at how much calmer my brain feels when I can just yes. get, pin some of those those thoughts that are pinging around in my brain like crazy. And I just pin them down and then I'm like, oh, there they are. And then I can just, I don't know, I feel calmer. So it's like you're forcing your monkey brain to like go sit and have a time out, but not because exactly. they're in trouble, but because they just need to chill like a toddler, yeah. you know? That's how <laughs> exactly. it feels to me. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm really glad to hear you say this. I didn't realize that you only did one page. I only do one page too. And that feels like totally enough. I write, Yeah, I have a moleskin that's kind of a larger one, like one of those eight by 10 ones. And so the lines are narrower and I'm like, one page is plenty. I've said enough. Yeah. Um, And I I start getting nervous that like, I'm going to be saying things that are too good for the morning pages. Like that sounds really 
that sounds haughty. I don't mean it in that regard. I mean, well, something that's I worth wanna... pulling out and using somewhere else. Yeah. 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 I, I just want to start writing whatever it is I want to actually work on um, after one page. I also don't do it first thing in the morning because first thing in the morning, my thoughts are like, it is early. Sun is up. <laughs> I don't pee. want to be like vertical. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I need some coffee first. So I like yeah, me wait too. Me too. 30 minutes or maybe even a little longer. I just kind of get to it when I get to it and I don't sweat it. I do too. And even if it's in – actually, I found that even if it's in the afternoon, if that's the first time I could get to it, it's still worthwhile to do a page. Um, yes. But I usually do it closer to whenever you and I and our writing group is meeting mm-hmm. to write together. I'll, I'll often spend the first 10 or 15 minutes of our writing time. Just, okay, first morning that's pages, true, then I'll move on to my other thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So it's okay. whenever I get so, to it. Well, and then speaking of, because we've in the past, I want to say like last summer, you were writing your book or whatever it is you were working on by hand. Do you still do that? <laughs> um, yes. I like to write first drafts by hand because uh-huh. I don't remember where I read this. I know someone else has talked about this. Um, but you know, when you when you type something out, it looks like it does in a book. And so that makes that whole gap that we were talking about between what we're writing, what we want it to look like feel mm-hmm. even worse. Also, I love revising. So if the first draft is always the hardest one for me. It's the least fun for me. And then revising something and making it better, which is probably why I'm writing picture books now because they're short. And so I can spend <laughs> a lot of time, like several months, rewriting and rewriting and rewriting the same story. That feels more fun to me than writing a long story over that same amount of time. So then I can, I handwrite it and I just, until I feel like I've got to just now, I've got to get it typed up so that I can um, work with it in Word or wherever I'm doing it uh, on my computer. Like mm-hmm. I kind of put that off as long as possible. And then once I'm like, okay, I've got to get it in there, I'll put it on the computer. And then I've still got several more passes to do usually by that point too. And you've told me before that the part of our brain that lights up when we write by hand is the same as the it's the same part of our brain as what we read. Or, yes. Right? I cannot remember where I he- I read this. <laughs> um, I was doing a whole bunch of research because I had heard, I think, from Mary Adkins. I think she did a podcast on handwriting, out your writing, uh, uh, your stories. And uh-huh. I thought, well, this is interesting. And so I started trying it and was kind of surprised at how easy it felt to me. Like it almost taps into that 12-year-old writer in you that wanted to write stories because that's how I wrote when I was 12. That I'm right. like, oh, this I could do. I like this. Um, so I started looking up just some research on it. And one of the things yeah, that I read was that when you're writing by hand, the same part of your brain lights up as when you're reading, which helps you write more for the reader than it might be if you were typing something out. And I also wonder if those of us who are also doing a lot of work online in other capacities, it's just a way to get my brain into the fiction space because I don't handwrite out. I should say this. I don't handwrite out nonfiction anything except for my journal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I'm with you there. I think there's just something that's really lovely about not staring at a screen for Mm. writing. And Mm -hmm. it forces me to not, it it forces my monkey brain also to calm down because there's like no tab to open in my journal to like, oh, I should check who was the governor of New York in 1984. You know, it's like, no, 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 I can just write X and then go back and fill that in, which is literally the thing I looked up today for my book. Uh I was like, why am I writing about Mario Cuomo? This is weird. I think I'm going to delete this part. We'll find out. <laughs> I yeah, my brain is a little scattered in our time this morning. I don't know what oh, was up. My anyway, okay. So you alluded to this, and this is actually a big freaking deal. You you know, in your spare time, launched a whole publishing wing. 
<laughs> and I was there when you like decided this. It was like one week you were frustrated. The next week you're like, guess what? I'm starting the whole thing. <laughs> this is like the story of my life, actually. That, I know, that right? Transition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I created a I'm company. starting a whole thing I don't know how to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and that actually has worked to your advantage so far. So it, you know yourself well enough to work well within your confines. Anyway, so you're starting Waxwing Books. Why are you starting a whole new publishing wing when there are a bajillion out there? Yeah, there's a couple things going on here. I think one is the short, the short story is that I, over the last um, several years, oh gosh, I should probably figure out how many years, but let's just say five. <laughs> Um, have been writing children's picture books. Yeah. Something like that. Somewhere close to that. I've been writing picture books and, um, and having them critiqued. And I, I even, I was friends with Tommy DePaola. If anyone listening knows Streganona, he's like an iconic children's illustrator, Mm -hmm. um, became friends with him. And I was even out at his studio and he critiqued one of them for me. And really, wow, that was a humbling experience. Really? (laughs) really Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So he Tommy is it? a very yes, he is a very joyful, yeah. effervescent person, and you, like that makes you just happy and laugh just to be in his presence. But when he's working, he goes into work mode, and he has oh such this respect for children's books. Like he, I think he really feels like only the best books should make their way into our kids' hands. That he's ruthless. He tore my manuscript apart for an hour, and then at the end, he said, "I love it." And I wish I could illustrate that. I want to illustrate this, actually. So he pitched it to his agent, got his agent to represent me. And then the agent took the book around to a bunch of publishers, big publishers in New York. And nobody was really interested in it. And we got a lot of the same feedback. Like, it's too classic. It's too quiet. It's too old-fashioned. It's too – It's basically what I was hearing was it's – timeless. But what I've noticed, and this I notice a lot with my work at Read Aloud Revival, is a lot of the books that are coming out right now are speaking to this moment. And publishing has always done that. That's not new, that we are speaking to the moment that we live in. But something that I love about children's books in particular, about my favorite children's books in particular, are their timeless quality, are the fact that mm-hmm. I read them 25 years ago. Someone read them to me, and I can still read them with my kids, and they're just as loved and the 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 themes and the ideas and the characters all feel just as real today as they might have 40 years ago when the book was published or 50 years ago when the year was published or mm-hmm. um so in that sense we waited a while that was a couple of years that this agent was taking my books around um and we just kind of got to a place I should say in the midst of all of this Tommy actually fell and had surgery um, for a uh, bleed in his brain, and he passed away as a result of the surgery. It was very tragic. It was unexpected. So sad. Um, And so that was like, there was a grieving process there of our friendship. There was so much. There was like multi-layers. It was harder than I expected it was going to be for me. Um, And then, you know, like we just kind of sat on things for a while, and then it was probably, I'm trying to think, March to December, so about nine months. And I think, yeah, that you and I were in a, a meeting together where we were, you know, talking about ideas and goals and business stuff. And I, when I said, I think I'm going to do this, something welled up in me. Now, my husband has been saying for years, he kept saying, you know what makes a beautiful picture book. You know what you think makes a timeless book. You see all the best books that read a lot of revival. Just do it yourself. And I thought, I don't. 
know how. Right. <laughs> like literally. Sudden, yeah. 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 And also, right. okay, so picture books are different because like a lot mm. – I mean, you can self-publish a really beautiful book these days, but a picture book's a different animal because it's probably hard to make it look as beautiful as you want it to and yep. in all of the tools that we have for self-publishing. So I knew that if we were going to do this, we'd need to go further than just self-publishing it. We'd probably need to create our own imprint and we'd need to get pros on board and we'd need to like create a team that knew what they were doing and to create the kind of caliber of book that we wanted to create. So so then we just I, – I think something happened in December. I was I was getting sentimental. Christmas was Tommy's favorite holiday. And I think as a way to like honor the story, as a way to keep make this dream like actually come to life and as a way to sort of honor this story that he loved too and make it come to life and really put this, you know, what we felt like was a timeless story in the hands of kids, we decided to go for it. And so then it was yeah. like, okay, I guess we're starting a publishing arm. So <laughs> – I wonder how you do that. You can't really Google that, by the way. I was going to say, did you Google, like, how do you start a publishing company? For sure I did, but I didn't get any good results. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, it's – I when I just think about even publishing adult fiction, there's so many steps. It's a whole beast with illustrators. I mean, that's like a – it's a thing. It's like – I don't even know. I mean, and you've told me before now that I know how long it takes to create these. So just having so to source long. all your resources had to be a, a major undertaking. Well, and I have a lot of respect for the collaborative nature. And I think people do. Like once you've worked with an editor who actually helps you say what you're trying to say. So let's go back to Read Aloud Family, which is a nonfiction adult book that I wrote a few years back. And I worked with Carolyn McCready at Zondervan. Carolyn mm-hmm. McCready is amazing. Absolutely adore her. And she helped me say what I was trying to say. So many times I would send her a chapter and she would say, this is great. And also I'm going to have you start over <laughs> because <laughs> you're not saying what I know you're trying to say here. And she just helped me like an editor does that. And I have a lot right. of respect for that. And in the picture book space, you need an editor to do that. Who knows picture books inside and out with your picture book mm-hmm. text. You need an art director to do that for the illustrator so that the illustrator is also saying what they're trying to say. And then you need a book designer and a printer who can actually, you know, make a book that looks like it could sit ne- on the shelf next to a book that's coming out of one of those New York publishers. So yeah, there was a lot of things. I felt like I was constantly looking around for people who were like, who can help me make what we're trying to make here? Um, mm-hmm. And I just feel like, this is true for a lot of things in my life, but probably it feels very concentrated with this project where I feel like I just jumped, I jumped in and was like, okay, I guess we're going to figure this out. As well. I feel like we're building the plane as we're flying it. That's what it feels like. <laughs> sure. And I'm sure that's what a lot of entrepreneurs do, honestly. You know, like what you said already is we see the end result that's out. You know, we see the the plane, but we don't see all the moving parts it took to build it. So it's easy to think, well, I don't know how to do it, so I won't. When in reality, nobody knows what they're doing about most things in life. And we tend to learn best by doing. So um, I think it's really cool that you're doing that. And I think it's really cool that you are addressing the issue of what makes a children's book good or a story good, I should even say, hmm. because I think it's not, I mean, in particular, it's children's books, but I think uh, all fiction right now seems to be uh, the stuff that's being published, there's a lot of things that wants to speak to the moment. And while there's place for that, there's also a place for, I think of what G.K. Chesterton says, the democracy of the dead, you know, tradition. Mm-hmm. And a lot of stories that are told these days are all about how tradition 
has been a ball and chain and let's let's shun tradition in the name of progress. And there are times when that's good and there are times when that's actually folly because there's something kind of smart about listening to our elders. And and to me, that's what books like, um, you know, even with all their quote problems, you know, Little House on the Prairie and Jane Austen and Roald Dahl, all these books, that's a little bit of what they do. They're, it's us listening to our elders. And so to me, that's what the idea of writing timeless stories does. It gives kids something to that they can read now that kind of harkens back to those former truths that are still true now. Okay, so much here. So one thing is, have you read Breaking Bread with the Dead by Alan Jacobs? Yeah, I do. Okay. I, I have, so, and I love it. Okay, yeah. So one of the ideas he, he uh, proposes in there is one of the reasons we need to read old books by dead authors and that are old is because – and the books are old – it's because it helps us step outside of time. I want to say that he uses a phrase called deep time or something, but it's been at least a year since I've read that book. So I can't remember exactly yeah. his phrasing. But this idea that in order for us not to feel like and get like sucked up and kind of spinning in the nowness of our moment, we have to be able to engage with our culture and our news and our time and also step into the deep water of what's come before. And like you're saying, it's like standing on the shoulders of giants. So interestingly, um, I didn't really notice this until very recently when I was describing this first picture book is called A Little More Beautiful, The Story of a Garden. And I was describing it to somebody else and I realized that's sort of a theme. Now, one of the things that I have really taken seriously is um, – not writing picture books with a theme in mind at the beginning or a message in mind. I'm sort of allergic to preachy luxury books, like on the nose yep. books, you know, of any kind. And so, but I'm noticing now that I've written it, now that it's done, like it's all ready, I'm realizing, oh yeah, that's in here and this is in here and this is like a, another theme that's in here. One of the things that is there is that basically the story is of an old woman who is making her world more beautiful every day by planting gardens and feeding a cat and tending to her village. But nobody in town notices her. She's invisible, which I think a lot of us can also relate to. Mm -hmm. um, the work that she does is like quotidian and small, but it makes everyone's world more beautiful and no one notices her um, except for one little girl. And when the old woman is taken away from her home and everything starts to get neglected, all of her gardens and the cat, um, they they start to be neglected. The little girl sees this and picks up the work of the old lady and and of Lou Alice is her name, and starts doing make you know doing the things that she had done. But then she also realizes at some point in the story, this isn't quite enough. I have to do something myself. I have to bring something of my own to make the world more beautiful. And so then that's the ending. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But <laughs> she has to do yes. something herself to make the world more beautiful. So this idea of like standing on the shoulders of giants or taking on the work of those who've gone before us with respect and care and love and also bringing something of ourselves to our own day. I think that's kind of what the story is saying. I didn't realize it when I wrote it, but that feels to me like... <clears throat> sort of what we're doing here with the books that we want to make at Waxwing, which mm -hmm. is um, that timeless quality, a high respect for the timelessness of a really good story, um, while also realizing we were made for such a time as this. So we were made to publish books here and now for such a time as this. And so what does that look like? Yeah. Well, and I think something about these old timeless stories, you know, as you know, I teach high school English. I tell these kids all the time, I'm not 
assigning you these books for your 18-year-old selves. I'm assigning them for your 38-year-old selves. You know, you're not going to love Dostoevsky right now, and that's okay. The point is not to love them. The point is to be shaped by them, you know, Mm. for this to affect your character, maybe even just enough so that you will perhaps dust off a copy and pick it up again at 38 years old. Wow. Maybe. Yeah. And so to me, that's what good children's stories do too. Like I've read your book and I immediately wanted to turn to the beginning and read it again. And I can think of probably like 20 picture books that we've had out of hundreds and hundreds that we've had, like 20 of them that still do that for me as Mm. a 40 something year old mom with kids past that age. I still love, you know, um, speaking of in my high school class, juniors and seniors, when we do Britlet, we read a Winnie the Pooh story every like four times a year. And I'm immediately reminded by those good children's stories because they speak to kind of like what C.S. Lewis says, like, you know, if it's not good enough for a 10 year old or 50, how, what does he say? It's not good when you're 10. It's not good for when you're 50. I forget. Any book that's worth reading at yeah, a 10 should also be worth reading at 50 or something. Like I'm I'm butchering it too. I don't yes. know the quote, but yeah. And I think that's yeah. what and I think that's what these timeless stories do. They teach they um they're so timeless that they speak truth to a 50-year-old just like they mm. would a 10-year-old. And I think that's what your books are going to do. Um and you said the thing about preachiness. I think that is yeah. really spot on and perhaps what goes wrong with these stories that speak to the here and now agendas that well maybe that's what it is that there is an agenda. Like mm-hmm. whenever we yeah. approach as a writer, whenever we approach our reader like they are smart, even a kid, mm. that we don't need to tell them what life lesson they need to take away. We let them figure that one out. When we treat our reader like they're smart, then the book becomes more timeless. And that's the problem I see with a lot of books now, especially children's books. It's like pushing way too hard. This is how you're supposed to benefit from this book. See, here are the three takeaways. You know, now go and be a better person. (laughs) And it just feels like, oh, now you just told me what to do. And now I don't want to do it. (laughs) Yeah, it feels also like a lack of respect for the child reader, like, I'm not sure you're going to get the point unless I absolutely show it to you. But to me, (laughs) it feels like whether we're teaching our kids or talking, having a discussion with our our kids, or we're reading a story with our kids, a better posture to take is always, ooh, look what I found. Kind of like we're walking along a beach and we find a seashell like buried in the sand and we pick it up and we go, oh my goodness, come look at this. Like this curiosity and wonder and an invitation for all of us to look at something Mm -hmm. beautiful. Um. One of the things you just said was going back to the beginning and wanting to go back to the beginning of the story and read it again. And at Read Aloud Revival, one of the things it's so hard to describe when people say, you know, what are you looking for when you say like, this is a really good children's book. But one of the things for me is that it makes me look longer than necessary, or I want to sit with it longer than I need to. Because one of the things I think is kind of interesting, um, as parents and teachers, we tend to do this. We tend to try and move our kids out of picture books and up to chapter books and novels and longer texts. And then we take them to art museums, you know, to look at art on the walls and then read these texts. When a picture book could be, it has the opportunity. They're not, they're not always this, of course, but it has the opportunity to be this art gallery and this beautiful poetry, basically, mm-hmm. in the lap of your child where they get this very close, touchable encounter with something beautiful to look at and to listen to and to read. Um, which also mm-hmm. kind of brings me – so another thing we're doing, and I'm very excited about this, <laughs> with uh, with all of our picture books at Waxwing is – do you remember when we were kids and we had books on tape and it would mm-hmm. be like, ding, 
to turn the page. Mm-hmm. Turn the page. Yep. Yes. Okay. So they don't do that anymore. And I don't know why they don't do that anymore. They should. So here's that we're going to stand on the shoulders of giants because we're bringing those back. <laughs> nice. So with um, a little more, actually all of our picture books, the audiobook version is going to be included with it. It'll be like a QR code on the book that you can. So the idea being you can share this book with your child. They can sit with it in their lap. They can pour over the pictures. And also if they ha- want to have that immediate relationship with the story and you're not there to read it with them or they are having quiet time or they just want to engage with the story themselves, they can listen to the audiobook and have those those page chimes. So even if they can't read it themselves, I guess getting that child the child right there up against the art, not against the art, but with the art close enough to touch it and with the words like kind of dancing into their ears, that feels to me like an experience that we that's really forming and really beautiful and that I I think we should be bringing back to our kids. And it's not mm-hmm. something the publishers are doing right now. And also that, again, that timelessness, that sort of ability for a story to stand outside of time is not something I'm seeing from a lot of publishers. So that's what we're going to do. Right. Have you ever had that experience when you open a book and you see a picture and you suddenly have this flashback of looking at that picture when you were a kid and loving oh, that yes. one? Yes. Like, I love that set of balloons at the zoo in the background. And I would just look at that picture forever. And I totally forgot about it. But somehow it got like lodged in my brain. Yes. It's wild. Yeah. Even like, I mean, I can think of a big painting we had on our living room wall as a kid of a mother in a rocking chair. And she was either sewing or knitting. I can't remember exactly what. But like, I I can see it. I can see like, and if I saw, I, I haven't actually seen that painting in 20, well, how old am I? (laughs) In probably 30 years or something. (laughs) But like, I, if I saw it, I know it would bring, it would flood me back, flood back with, you know, I spent a lot of time staring at it and imagining what they were doing in the picture and what the baby was thinking in the picture. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Which I think speaks to the thing I was going to ask you about next is how to pick the right illustrator for a story because, gosh, that matters so much. Like I can think of stories that I didn't like because I didn't like the pictures. And I can't even remember what the story was about. But if I loved the pictures, it became a great story, which is not to dismiss the author. But I think when you're a kid and that's how you learn, those things matter so much. So I know from the business side of things, you and I talking, that it was really like a high, high priority of yours to find the right illustrators. How did you do that? Yeah, it's tricky because I really feel like, and and this is sort of a good test you can put a picture book through, is if you were to take away the text and just look at the pictures, unless it's a wordless book, then that story shouldn't totally make sense. There should be something missing. And also, if you were to take away the pictures and just read the text, again, and that's true with a little more beautiful, if I was just to give you the, the yeah. word document, you wouldn't know what was happening because there are several wordless spreads in there that are a very key part of the story. Um, yeah. And so the illustration, the illustrator really brings 50% of the story. They really bring at least 50% of the story, sometimes more, I think, um, probably more to a pre-reader for sure. Uh, we have four different books we're working on at Waxwing. The, a Little More Beautiful is the first one. And that one, um, my oldest daughter f- saw Breezy Brookshire's art on Instagram. And I had seen Breezy's work before, but I hadn't been working on figuring out how to publish our own books yet. So it hadn't like, I hadn't like connected dots. 
But yeah. my oldest daughter said, mom, check out this illustrator. And as soon as I saw her work, I thought, oh, this is Lou Alice. She could do Lou Alice. But the other three books, so hers, I felt like I was just like, oh, please, I hope I can get her on board with this project, um, mm-hmm. which has been a big obstacle, sort of not, it wasn't an obstacle to get her on board, but it has been an obstacle for me to kind of think through how do I communicate what we're trying to do? And that, um, you know, we're just fledgling and we haven't made anything yet. So how do I get these illustrators to trust us that like, we are going to make your book so beautiful. And, um, anyway, it's been tricky, but for the other three books, I feel like I spend a ungodly amount of time (laughs) pouring over illustrations and thinking about the style because all four books are being illustrated by four different illustrators. They all have a little bit of a different tone and a different feeling. And I think that's one of the things I'm thinking about as I'm thinking about the text is I'm thinking like, well, how do I want a child to feel when they're reading this? What kind of, like, it's very immersive for, especially if you think about a pre-reader who's looking at a a storybook and either they're being read to, or they're just staring at the pictures. It's an immersive experience for them. They sort of fall into it a little bit like Alice down the hall, down the, um, mm-hmm. yeah, down the hall, right? Yeah. And I just feel like that feel, that overall feeling or sense of, um, I, it's really hard to put into words. I know it when mm. I see it. I can be like, that's yep. that's the kind of illustration we're going for. But right. one thing that's been really fun for me in working with these illustrators is I think I have an idea of what it should look like. And then they, like I said, bring so much to the table that usually I go, oh my goodness, like this is a really good example is with this first book, when Breezy painted Lou Alice and sent her to me, did a sketch. I don't think it was a painting. It was a sketch. I thought, Oh, there she is. She's been living in my brain for years, you know, but I'd never seen her. And I thought, oh, that's her. That's that. that, She's right there. It's like they know what they're doing or something. (laughs) It's like they know what they're doing. (laughs) Well, and so Breezy's style, like your words plus Breezy's are reminded me of Sarah Small's work, like the library and the garden. Yeah. And those are my favorite. Like I love, those are some of the books, like my kids are all 12 and up now, and we have kept a shelf of picture books still in our main living area just because, like, I know you guys are all reading chapter books, so we're going to keep that. And those are some of the books that we've kept out. Like, those are books that I want to look at, um, especially relating to the gardening, you know, the flowers yeah, and the yeah. little details. And so I don't know if that's, like, what you were going for, but well, it's, it Yeah, it's interesting that. that you say that. Sarah Stewart is her name. Her husband's Stewart, name is David you. Small. David yeah, Small. Yeah, you were yep. just combining them. Sarah Stewart yes. wrote those, and her husband, David Small, illustrated them. The That's Gardener, it. The Library, I can't remember. There's a few others, others. yeah. We, yep. I interviewed them once for Read a Lot of Revival. They are oh, just fun. a lovely, lovely couple. But yes, those are some of my absolute favorites. In fact, if we think of like the great conversation, if we want to think about the great conversation mm-hmm. with picture books and every picture book is sort of talking to other picture books, yeah. I would say this picture book, A Little More Beautiful, is talking to uh, Miss Rumpius is the first one that mm-hmm. comes to mind. And then The Gardener is the second one that comes to mind. Oh, so those two. Yeah. 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 So I, I love that that's that. what you thought of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually very much can see exactly where you're going with both of those books. Um, and I think that matters. That's not that's not just an afterthought. Like it's, you know, if we're going to go with the idea of like, no, there's nothing new under the sun, then there's also this idea of like, you know, um, I think Tolkien talked to to I forget who about why he doesn't really like strict allegories for his story, like why yes. the Lord of the Rings wasn't a, a complete Christological retelling of anything is because there's already like the best story ever told and no analogy is ever going to tell it 
as well as just the original, you know, just the yeah. actual Jesus or the actual <laughs> <laughs> yeah. real story of life. And so let's just take little you know, little pages from that big picture book of life and tell a little paragraph of it. And so there's a reason why all the books that are timeless all kind of have that same vibe, even if they're like completely different. I mean, the Odyssey and (laughs) and Miss Rumpius, but there is something about them because they talk about things that are still true all these hundreds of years later. And I think that's why these kinds of books matter and why we as readers and parents need to prioritize these kinds of books. You know, Mm -hmm. I know a lot of listeners, I mean, tons of listeners on this podcast are bookworms. um, And they've known we've talked about twaddle before, like just the stuff that's just like not great, but you can't you can't even put your finger on it. You just know this is like a dumb book. It's um, like the picture probably book that you read to your kids and then you accidentally hide behind the couch. Exactly. So it exactly. <laughs> or it's like it comes with a free meal and you're like, oh, great. We yeah. This. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that kind of book. And so to me, there's most of those books, or in fact, I think all those books have left our house. Like we don't have any of those books anymore. So the ones that we have kept, I have no plan to get rid of. I want my grandkids to read them. I want my kids to read them to their kids. Like they are going to stay in our family treasure chest of stuff um, because of that timelessness. So to me, it's worth spending money on things like this. So how do you like this transition? (laughs) How on earth you brand new company Like, how do you, I mean, you can't just like put your books out for sale outside, you know, a bookstore and say, here, buy. Yeah. I I don't know. What do you do? What do you do? (laughs) Well, it's, uh, that's a good question. If anybody has the answer, please call me. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, uh, so we've been asking this question ourselves. The first, um, the first question, the first big obstacle is first of all, how many do we print? Um, That's Mm -hmm. a question that I feel like we're, every time we'd make a guess, we realize we're picking that number out of the sky. We really have <laughs> no idea how many to print. And printing picture books is number one expensive because they're full color. Mm-hmm. I want them to look, I want it to be, so when you hold this book in your hands, you cannot tell that this did not come from Penguin or Harper or um, Houghton yeah. Mifflin or one of the big publishers. I want it to be that beautiful, uh, you know, that well-made, I should say. Um, But also like we... It's just, it's time consuming. It's expensive. And it, so we can't really, there's not a huge room for error, like in either direction. So what we decided to do is launch it on Kickstarter because then we can do pre-orders and we can tell people, tell us if you want a copy. Basically what the Kickstarter is asking is, tell us if you want a copy of A Little More Beautiful in the first print run. There'll be more print runs, but at least in this first print run, tell us if you want a copy and then everybody can tell us what they want, (laughs) how many they want. And then we can order based on that information. And then, so our plan at Waxwing anyway, is to release this first book on Kickstarter. We'll ship out all of the books to the Kickstarter backers first. And then after that, we will release the book um, everywhere that lets us. So we'll sell it on our website. We'll have it available on Amazon um, and any book retailers or independent bookstores that are willing to work with us um, will be happy to work with. So that's our plan. It won't, it's the book industry is interesting because we aren't a big player in the game. We won't be able to distribute it as far and wide as I, I can't say it'll be available everywhere. That's just not how it works. Um, hmm. But I, we, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty optimistic that anybody okay. who wants the book will be able to get their hands on it. Yeah. So that's sort of, that's our this- game plan. 
I don't know how this works. If I were to call my local bookstore and say, hey, could you pre-order this for me? Would they be able to pre-order a book from Waxwing? Yeah. So it depends on what their policies are. So either your library. Okay. So you could call your library and say, hey, could you um, carry this book or your your local bookstore? If your library or bookstore has a policy that they only buy books from one of the major distributors, which would be like um, Ingram. Ingram or mm-hmm. – there's another one that I'm forgetting, Baker and Taylor. Yeah. 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 Then no, because, because we want to control the high quality of our book, um, we're not going with a big distributor yet. Right now we're keeping okay. it all in-house to make sure we can keep, make these as beautiful and high quality as possible. So if they have that policy, then we're going to be out of luck. If, however, they're willing to bulk order from our website or discount retail or library order from our website, yes, absolutely. They'd be able to get it. So it totally depends on the actual library or bookstores policies. We're going to make it available. It just depends on what they're willing to do. What if they want to do it? Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So I know we're talking about this a little earlier in the summer right now. Your Kickstarter goes out later in August, right? But which honestly is not that long from now. It's like it's not that long and it's consuming oh every gosh. part of my brain. So I'm happy to talk about it because that's all I'm doing these days that feels okay. like it's getting ready so for So tell it. me <laughs> and we'll put whatever we can in the show notes and then whenever yeah. things do go live, we'll adjust the show notes. So tell us like what we can do to make this happen. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're putting the finishing touches on the Kickstarter campaign right now. So like I said, we're launching a Kickstarter okay. so that we know how many to print. And so that will mm-hmm. go that will launch on August 10th and it'll run through September 1st. So if you want to know when that goes live and you don't want to miss it, you can go to waxwingbooks.com right now and you can just pop your email into the page there. The other thing you can do um, is you can text the word waxwing, like all one word. W-A-X-W-I-N-G, Waxwing, to the number 33777. And that way, we'll also, we'll just send you a quick text, one quick text. I will not inundate you with text. I promise. I hate that. Uh, I'll send you a quick text when the Kickstarter's open. So if you're like, oh, I really don't want to miss it because we can only really guarantee you're going to get the book in the first print run if you do it through the Kickstarter, since we're using that information to make our first big order. So if you want to make sure you don't miss it, you can either go to waxwingbooks.com or text waxwing to 33777. And then that Kickstarter goes up August 10th. And we actually have some fun goodies. You know how Kickstarters work. Uh, we have an exclusive book bag that we're only releasing through the Kickstarter that's really beautiful. It says books make the world a little more beautiful. Um, we have some prints and postcards and other fun things that we're going to be releasing. So that's all part of the I Kickstarter. I saw too. all that. I was like, oh, I love it. It's yeah. so cute. Yeah. <laughs> that's such a fun idea. So, okay. You mentioned four books. Which means this isn't just like a one-off thing. Like this, I mean, it's, I've told you this before, but like whenever you mentioned Waxwing, in my head, it, like everything, like it was like stars align. It was like, oh, this is Sarah's, this is like what she's meant to do right now. Like this mm. is your thing because it meets such a big need out in the in the world. It meets... I mean, this is a genuine need, not just for children's books, for adult books, too, that we have more timeless quality books that are published that are new. Yeah. Um, So you've mentioned three other books. I guess this means like you're in this for the long haul, right? We're in it for the long haul. Those next three books, I mean, our plan right now is to roll them out every, I don't know, six to nine months after. I mean, they're all in the works. The second book is almost ready, in fact. So we are, we've been hard at work behind the scenes getting them ready. Really, the Kickstarter is launching the first book and is sort of launching the publishing company, the release of like, this is what we're doing. And right now, we're we're not accepting submissions from writers yet 
for picture books or middle grade novels. But I hope that's something that we do in the near future. I can't make any promises yet because like I said, we don't know what we're doing. So we're we're building this plane as we're <laughs> flying it. So if we add that wing to our plane, I will keep you posted. Um, yeah. yeah, we're in it for the long haul. This is definitely, I mean, I have not been this excited about a project since we started Read Aloud Revival. <laughs> so yeah. this feels like, oh, I mean, it's been tricky. It's been hard. I feel like we're constantly it's a steep learning curve, but also there's been grace every single moment. And I really feel like we can feel God's hand all through it. So it's been mm. a really, really beautiful, um, interesting think, experience. Yeah. I mean, I think this legitimately is a real need that so many parents feel. I mean, you know this, but friends of mine will say they go to your website to know what to read to their kids because there's mm. so many kids books out there. A lot mm. of them are garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as the kids get older and they get longer. It's like, I can't sit and read this whole thing. It's yep. just a minefield trying to figure out what you can give your kids that's either not full of awful things or even just like stupid, you know, waste yeah. of their time. And so <laughs> yeah. for me, yeah. one of the things I love about you, like you've, you've built up your credibility as a human being <laughs> and as a person of good taste. Um, and you know, seeing the little logo waxwing to me means I can, as a parent, you know, say, oh, this book will be good. Like Mm. automatically it'll be good. I mean, I'm hoping that's what you're thinking because that's what we need right now because it's it's too hard to figure out what how to be a parent. Yeah. And especially as your kids grow, it's impossible to read ahead for them. Um, And our kids are, depending on the child, they're ready for different topics and ideas at different times. And it's just tricky. Yeah. So I hope so. I hope the the Waxwing logo will feel like oh, I know this one's going to be a win. I mean, that's what we try to do at Read Aloud Revival with our book lists is a a lot of our book lists are shorter than you might find elsewhere. And it's because we're trying to make sure every book on that list is very likely to be a win as a read aloud. Um, And that's what I feel like we're going to do at Waxwing is we want these books to be books that you really like to read aloud to your kids. (laughs) Because if you've got, I mean, especially if they're picture books, you're reading those their favorite picture books over and over. Um, yeah. And I, we all have that experience as parents of, you know, you read Dora the Explorer and feel like you're going to poke your eyeballs out. You read right. Miss Rumpheus and you're like, I think something just happened to me while I read that story. <laughs> Why do I want to move here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> what is happening? No, it's yeah. true. Yeah. I will say, if I can put in a request for the future, like whenever you move into middle grade yes. and older books, um, I, I hear this from a lot of parents, but this was always the issue with us when we have kids that are reading at one level, but they're not mature enough for topics. If you could write like really great quality literature, that's not about awful things. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. not too much to ask. <laughs> I mean, this is what we're all looking for, for our middle grade kids, especially if you have kids who are voracious readers, because then they read through your supply of books that you know. We hear this a lot at Read Aloud Revival. My kids read everything you recommended. You got to give me more. And I think, oh my goodness. Um, because <laughs> yes, when they might be able to read at a higher level and read really good, beautiful, and let's not even use the word beautiful. Let's just say well-written language. Yeah and stories, but the content needs to match their developmental level. And it also needs to just honor who we're telling them that they are in God's world. So that's not what we're seeing necessarily in all the books that are coming out right now. Yeah. 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 So no small small order. order, Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. But highly necessary. And honestly, the fewer, if if it means fewer books, but better than so be it, you know, I mean, I'm all for that. It's needed. Okay. So um, as we wind down, 
what we do here every chat is we share something in your life making things more beautiful. It can be big or small. So Sarah, what's one thing right now adding a little more beauty to your days? So here's something I'm doing. Okay. I have started working through Mark Kistler's book, You Can Draw in 30 Days. I think that's what it's called. I'm almost sure that's what it's called. You Can Draw in 30 Days. Mark Kistler has like a whole bunch of different um, drawing videos. He had like a public program drawing. You might recognize him from like, I think he's been doing this for years. So like he had kids programs in the 80s and stuff. Um, Got it. But he, this book is like a 30 day, like every day he gives you another uh, basically little challenge, like uh, takes 20 minutes or something. And I have been trying to work through it just for fun. I don't draw, but I I want to draw just for fun. Like I actually don't want So when I say this, people are like, oh, you want to illustrate your own picture books? No, actually, I do not <laughs> want to do that. I just want to draw for yeah. fun. Um, and one of the things I've noticed as a result of working through this book is that I'm just noticing I am not like I, I said earlier, I'm a fast, I move too fast for my own good. I don't notice a lot of <laughs> details. <laughs> um mm-hmm really important details sometimes that I miss. And so this book is making me realize when I go on a walk now, I like notice the shadow that the trees make based on where the sun is in the sky differently than I was doing before, just because I'm drawing. So like I drew a tree yesterday in the book and I, and I noticed, you know, I'm, it's making me look at the world around me slower and more carefully. So that I feel like is helping me enjoy the beauty that's all around me in a way that I usually don't because I'm always going like way too fast for my own good. That's very cool. That's a, that's a first, uh, hmm. that we've had on the show, like, a uh, how to draw a book. That's really yeah. cool. I yeah. love that you're doing that too. Yeah. It feels like summer is a good time to do something like that because, you know, it, we yeah. have a little more, time that feels like it's not pegged for something. And so I feel, and yes. you know, what's fun too, is I just get it out. I get out my little sketchbook and my, my Mark Kistler book and I sit down and I start to draw. And then I notice that about half the time my kids will get a sketchbook and sit next to me and start drawing too, which is really fun. Oh, that's so cool. I yeah. love that. It's like an Seth and I recently talked on the show about the idea of having hobbies and how hard it is as an adult to give ourselves permission just to have hobbies, like just to be an amateur at something so and to true. do something with like no end. Like, yes, I'm not going to monetize this. I'm not going to like share yep. this even sometimes with anybody. Yeah. It's just for yeah. my, it's for its own sake. Those are so needed. We forget that. We forget so. it. And I think it's yeah. really hard to make time for it. And then when we can mm-hmm. make time for it, it's hard to justify it to ourselves. So yeah, agree. Tend to economize well everything. Yeah. 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 Good for you. Well, my thing is I'm kind of cheating and doing a twofer, but I kind of use them on top of each other. So it's I'll I'll explain. So as you know, we are writing together in the mornings and um, but then we go on mute. But I don't know about you, but like total silence can make me crazy. Like that can actually be more distracting. Yeah. I get a lot done at a coffee shop, but uh, there's something also nice about just staying put, you know, where you don't have to mess with like, what's the Wi-Fi going to be like and other yeah, people. Yeah. And, um, anyway, so I've done this combination crossover the past few weeks as we write. Um, there's this website. It's so corny. I hate the name. It's called imissmycafe.com. It's awful. (laughs) But it's one of these things. It's just a really simple interface. And you can like toggle the different sounds like the barista, the preparing of drinks, coffee cups. Yeah. um, Other customers. So like that talking noise in the background. And then you can have like rainy day, sunny day, uh, fireplace, all these things. And you can toggle the volumes. And so it's just kind of a way to like create your background noise and just have it go. For the um, ambiance, basically. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's ambiance but that you can control a little bit more than if it's just, you know, something on YouTube. And so yeah. then, but yeah. I layer that lately anyway, I might change my mind in a few weeks when I get sick of it, but I created a playlist for my book. So my oh. fiction book, I just wanted a playlist, like I created a playlist that I thought my protagonist might make for her. Ooh, and I love it. Okay. Yeah. And it's kind of gotten me in the right headspace. It's a little bit tricky because it's not literal, meaning my book takes place in the past and these are all current songs. So it's okay. not exactly right. But there's something about like, if she were around today, what, you know, this is music she would like. And it just puts me in the right space. Does so it have, I've is heard- it instrumental or does it have lyrics? It does have lyrics, but nothing is really loud and crazy. Like okay. They're, okay. they're kind of quieter folksy songs, some of them anyway. A lot of times lyrics just doesn't work for me, but I think yeah. I've heard it enough times now where I'm not paying attention and it's just yeah. kind of putting the right mood. So that combined with the coffee shop noise has been really, it's like a nice partial solution for like going to a literal coffee shop with perfect Wi-Fi and a comfy chair and, you know, all the space <laughs> yeah. in the world. And um, you can get up from your so computer anyway, and I'll- not have to bring everything with you when you need to use the bathroom, all that stuff. Exactly. All the things. <laughs> so I can do all that from the comfort of my own home and um, kind of make my little world, make it happen, you know. So that's what I listen to when we're writing. Um, and then I just I pause love it. it. I hadn't thought on. of creating your own playlist based on a character. I love that. And get that kind of getting – I also think there's something to hearing a song over and over and over where like you're not really hearing it anymore. It's just like providing yeah. – your brain is like triggering the – now it's time to write the story. Yeah, it That's 100% good. does that. And I got this idea because I assigned it to my kids first, my students for extra credit. Like huh. make a playlist of one of the – like what one of the protagonists in the books we read, you know, of at least five songs and explain why they would have these five songs in their playlist. I mean we're so talking good. like That's Lizzie so Bennett. That's so fun. Yeah, Winston Smith. And it goes to just show that they understand the character and the plot and the, you know, the struggle that they go through. So I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I could do that for my own person. So that's right. I love that assignment. I love it. That's fun. There you go. All right. Well, it is time to wrap up this chat. So I'll get us out of here. You can find this episode as well as all episodes as always at a drink with a friend.com. Uh, If you like the show and what we do here, you can help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint. You can play a big part. Find the link to do this in the show notes of this episode, as always, or at adrinkwithfriend.com. And thank you in advance to everyone who's already been doing that for a while. We're really grateful. You can find me and how to connect with me at tishoxenwriter.com. Sarah, where can people find you? Uh, let's see. If you want to know more about the book, go to waxwingbooks.com. That's where you're going to get all the updates on the book. Uh, most of my work lives at readaloudrevival.com. All right. And we'll put the link to both of those in the show notes so you can just check out this episode to find what you need to find. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenrider. I'm Tish Oxenrider with Sarah McKenzie. And we'll be back here again with you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.